in the darkest worlds that ever were. The only thing that brings light are stories. Those stories are kept in one place. The tiny bookcase. Hello, explorers of the Sacred Library. Hello. I'm Ben. And I'm Nico. And you're listening to The Tiny Bookcase. We're joined today by someone described by the scrolls as an author, a lover of films, and an illustrator. His upcoming sci-fi fantasy series, Songbird, will begin on March 17th with book one, Hunters. Welcome, John Ford. Hello, John. Hello, thank you for having me. <laughs> well, no, no worries. How has your year been? Has it uh, been tough in the Midlands? I... Uh... I'd like to say it has been, but it hasn't. It's been pretty good, actually. I mean, dating back to last year, really, like um, all this the COVID lockdown stuff has kind of been, I hate to say it, but it's kind of suited me down to the ground a little bit because I'm quite sort of, um, I quite like having time to myself, if that makes sense. The lockdown hasn't yeah. really affected me in that way. It's given me a lot of time to write as well, which has been quite nice. So, yeah. It's, so, it's, no, it's nice to good. hear about someone who's had a good time of it. So thank you. Yay. Yeah, my, my <laughs> wife my wife would say I'm far too hermitish. So and it I say like having the lockdown where I'm not allowed to go out anywhere hasn't really affected me in any great way, shape or form in that sense. But yeah, you being too. a hermit's worked out brilliantly for her because you oh, started yeah. <laughs> in a two bed semi, you grew big enough to fill that and then you had to leave it and get into a much larger house. That's how this is no, that's true. hermit crabs, isn't it? <laughs> well it's true Jeez. though. <laughs> <laughs> Well, we're, uh, we're going to have some stories, and the, uh, the first story today is going to come from Nick, uh, the shared prompt being my collection. Do you want me to do that again with uh, Nico rather than Nick, actually? I don't mind. Do you, don't, you, do you really not mind? I really don't mind. Yeah, okay. <laughs> it's Fair enough. Contraction. It's like birth. <laughs> I think if it was a contraction, I'd be saying, Nick. <laughs> <laughs> Nick. <laughs> Nick. <laughs> <laughs> are you having a breakdown quite possibly i'm leaving this in <laughs> what does it mean then paid the goblinoid creature wrinkled its nose like a hog searching for truffles its eyes gleamed with a sort of savage delight names were a subject that always lit a fire in the bellies of the fey folk the slender man at the bar looked into the goblinoid from under the wide brim of his hat. His curls, charcoal black and falling well beyond his shoulders, framed a sharp-featured face, somehow all at once beautiful and horrifying, its perfection betraying the lack of humanity rested behind it. Too coloured. His voice was lyrical, in spite of the deadpan answer. My cloak bears both red and yellow, thus the moniker. All right, and fair enough. The goblinoid pushed a fat hand under its snout, clearing the slick trails oozing from one of its nostrils, before loosening any debris within with a sharp inhalation of breath. So, what do they call you when you don't have it on? The piper considered this for a moment trying to recall if the human world had ever seen him without his full garb. Not as far as he could recall. 
though he had gone by many names. They do not see me, friend, unless I will them to, and I would not do this without my cloak. The lumpy creature seemed disappointed. Creases furrowed its orange brow. It was obviously hoping for a true name, though it would take a far more competent and tricky fay to get such information from the piper. So much power there was in a name, enough to bind or free a being. They could not be exchanged so freely as they were among humankind. Ignorant sacks of meat that they were, the piper was jealous, after a fashion, of their blinkered lives. He stood. His reed-like limbs appeared so slim that they ought not be able to carry even his slight frame. Reaching into a fold in his luxuriant cape, the piper withdrew a velvet pouch. Reaching a begloved hand into that, he drew out a few coins and cast them onto the bar, their silver shining in the ambient magical glow. The goblinoid hissed and recoiled at the sight. Assassin! It squealed. Its pudgy hands had curled into fists, but its eyes were fixated on the metal. The piper's gloved hand swept the coins up. That had been extremely stupid. Too long spent wooing housewives and entrapping idiots in the mortal world. He had forgotten what worked metal meant to his kin. Apologies, friend. He withdrew a handful of smooth rose quartz discs, perhaps triple the value of what he had quaffed, and cast them onto the bar, bowing low as he backed out of the establishment. He stood straight once again and pocketed his coins, then cast his head from left to right, as though hoping he could shake some drunkenness from it. The air of the marketplace around him was pungent and heavy, like honey mixed with incense. It was all at once the comforting scent of home and the cloying sensation of drowning. He really had been spending too much time among the iron and stone of humanity. Quick strides took him between the alchemist's dens and fortune weaver's halls to a series of alleyways. Following his own footstep runes, he felt the alley turn around him as though he'd stepped into some great mechanism. The hand of this infinite clock turned to nine, and he found himself looking down at the sky. With a swish of his cloak, he turned to face the outline of a door that wasn't there, and walked through it. The grim dankness of the room he found himself in was anathema to the glittering palisades he'd previously walked betwixt. Reaching once again into his billowing robes, he withdrew the slender silver tube from which he had built his nom de plume. With a fluid motion, he brought the pipe to his lips and exhaled a lilting wail from it. The reaction from the room was instantaneous. Hundreds of tiny hands began to grasp between the bars, even those of the children as yet unawake. With his playing on going, he strode through the corridor built of cages. Glancing in at the infants, he saw that their cheeks had become sunken, and some of them teetered close to the precipice the mortals spent their tiny blips of existence skirting. Death. He had no desire to talk to the Reaper at present. It was such a drab thing, all bones and wails. With a flourish, he let the last notes of the refrain whistle through the room and stop. The mesmerising glamour fell from the children's minds, and once again their screaming started. Poor things, really. They were not to understand their parents' guilt, but a deal is, after all, a deal. 
when the townsfolk of Hamlin had fallen for the ruse he and the Rat King had laid out, or for the promise of a handsome reward, he had been filled with mirth. Once the rats were gone, however, the piper had been shunned by the wretches. He could have burned their homes to the ground, let the will-o'-the-wisps roam free among the dry kindling of the town, and piped a merry tune in the inferno. Instead, he had wreaked petty vengeance. The rats had been a ruse, yes, but his ability to command mortals with his pipe, well, that was real enough. He had taken the children, for their minds are more open to fancy, and as such easier to swirl the eddies of fantasy within. They would not remember being marched through the markets and squares of the Fey Realm. He would only let them know the cages, the pain, the aching gnawing at their innards that human hunger would bring. Why? A little voice called to him from a cage, and he leant in to view the occupant. The child was perhaps six of their years old, and looked as though it was perhaps a day away from eating its own fingers to survive. Because your parents love gold more than they love you. He had told no lie as he saw it. He didn't even truly want their gold. It was a completion of the contract he desired. It brought great wealth to the Fey to have coerced and manoeuvred humans. It brought terrible shame to have been duped or denied by them. Perhaps they will pay me now, if I visit them again. Do you think, little rodents? The children answered only with wails and sobs. Some, he thought, had fallen silent, perhaps even permanently. Such fragility. If his kind could die so easily, then an exchange of materials would be more than fair to save them from spending their short lives in such agony. This all seemed logical to him. In place of a crown of woven petals and golden threads, he had added the children of Hamlin to his collection. They were not so gaudy as he would have liked, but they were granting him some power. The fears of their parents, the rage of the town folk at the truth for which they were unprepared, the dark realisation between them that now it had been perhaps a week and the Pied Piper had told the truth. He really had stolen their babes in the night. He would visit the people of Hamlin this eve to see if they wished to renegotiate. Perhaps the news of the children beginning to drift like autumnal leaves would spur them to action. If not, he could always feed the fallen infants to those that yet lived, allow them a little more time. Or oh, there was always good trade in child flesh with the witch's coven. Either way, he had won, and would continue to do so. With a low bow and a tip of his hat, the piper swished back along the corridor of sobs and moans with a flash of yellow and red, left the children once again in the dark, nestled with his oaken totems and carved stone gifts, a rotten part of his collection. Oh, deep lore. The deavist. Went to a, a dark deep, place, too. Into a dark place, yeah. 
What was it the the trade the trade in child's flesh with the which is coven? I love that bit. That was hey, which has got to eat, man. <laughs> <laughs> I really liked it. I thought it, it it gave me really strong right right from the start. Gave me really strong um, vibes of uh, like American Gods mixed somewhere with Hellboy Two. You know the the market scene in Hellboy Two. Yeah, I was, yeah. I was. You're right there. I was thinking American Gods when he started. I was thinking, oh, this is. Mm. There was like a real sort of twisted whimsicalness to it at the start, and I was thinking, and I wondered where it was going. I was like, where's this going? And then the minute you said Hamlin, I thought, I, I know where this is. I didn't know where it was going, but I thought, okay, I get this now. This is. I know. I understand where this mm. is coming from. It's really good. I like it. Mm. It was. Um, it was actually inspired by me looking up what the Pied of Pied Piper meant. Ah, and it uh, it is that it means to bear two colours. Is that like a like a piebald horse? I suppose so. Huh. But yeah, traditionally the the character of the Pied Piper wears a cloak that is half yellow and half red, and that's where the name comes from. Learn something new every day. Well, there you go. And the pipe <laughs> of it is because he was a plumber, <laughs> specialising in new bends. Yeah, yeah, of course. Putting putting flushing to- uh, toilets into the uh, the Black Forest denizens' houses. It's interesting because, uh, I mean, you right from the, the offset, you were talking about fey and goblins and things. And then right from the offset, I was thinking uh, it plays it a little bit into my wheelhouse because that's kind of what my book's about as it comes down. But yeah. then you went off into a much more sort of almost traditional territory, I guess. Like, And I was thinking, why is this going? I But um, I had a point to make then, and I've lost my point now. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, when I was listening, I was thinking... Um, no, I've lost it. I've lost my point. I had a point to make, and it's gone. It'll come it back. It might to come me. back. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you never know. Um, the uh, yeah, having having like um, a folk tale played uh, straight and real. Yeah, was cool. Like with with um, you know, with backstory and fleshing out the world, and you know, I think there'd be a space for a much longer version of that story. You know, like a continuation. That's where I was going with this. I was just thinking. Like, because you were talking like the Fae and the goblins and stuff, and I thought that when I was doing my book, I, I went into a lot of backstory and a lot of a lot of these things that are in my book as well, because that's where it, where the, the the history of my book came from. It was me delving into these sort of folklore bits, um, and and looking at the folklore and things, and where I thought I could twist them into a more sci-fi way of doing it. But stuff like this, I've never really looked into. I never really looked into the background of things like the Pied Piper and things. That's like new to me. So it was fascinating to hear what like what you've just said as well about being Pied Piper and stuff. Is it um is it a grim tale, Pied Piper, or is it earlier? Don't know. Hmm. I think it might it's the same kind of grim, doesn't it? Yeah, it, it might seem. just be folklorey though, because the children get away in the end, don't they? Which isn't very grim's tales. You, you sometimes find like um, I I, I don't know. I doubt it was the Victorians because they played everything grim, didn't they? But there were some updates to those older folk tales where people got away when they didn't in the original versions. Yeah. Um, that happened later on, sort of revisions for a softer time. I mean, it, it is another one of those sort of. Um, it, it, you're right, it's like sort of grim tale. I don't think it's a grim tale or a Hans Christian Andersen It's very Germanic in its sort of because like a lot of those tales, like you, you hear the fairy tales these days that have translated down the years and have been sort of neutered for sort of um, like the kiddie generation, so to speak. But you look mm. at some of the original Germanic myths, and some of them are just horrific. <laughs> You're like, yeah. well, you know, you, you, Disney ain't going to sell that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I could, yeah. I could see a Disney film of that. Like, yeah, let, let's put them in the dungeon with all the kids that are wasting away and becoming skeletal. Yeah, Disney can try and sell that for me. That'd be great. 
I'd love to see their animation style of a kid in their own fingers. <laughs> in their own fingers. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> now you want that? You want that mad uh, live action money, man? Let's let's have uh, what Tom Hiddleston as the Pied Piper. That would be a good casting. Oh, God, yeah. I'm going. So did you did you go and look into the history of the Pied Piper specifically for this, or is this just something you're interested in? And it's just, anyway? a YouTube video that I saw the other. I was watching someone. They reviewed it. Say um, sort of a Eastern European take mm. on the Pied Piper story as an art house movie and it looked really cool but then they were talking in the video about you know where where the term pied came from and yeah. it stuck in my brain for about four months just in the back thinking oh that's such an interesting fact and it, uh, it resurfaced when oh, i was looking at the prompts we should give yeah. them a shout out i will i'll find it and i'll tweet it yeah <laughs> Oh, that was really good. Good, great story to get us uh, get us going. Yeah, as you say, John, like uh, getting towards your wheelhouse with a slight diversion. But uh, I'm I'm keenly anticipating uh, what you've uh, what you've put together for today. Um, just to set up a little bit of what I'm, uh, I'm not going to tell you what the story's about, but the story that I'm about to tell links into the book that I'm about to release in some respects. Because when you told me that the um, the prompt was my collection, which was going to be the words for it. It plays very neatly into a particular part of my book where it, and that's what it is. So basically what, what the story I'm about to tell is it's like, it's not a chapter from my book, but it's a missing chapter. It, it's going to become like an Easter egg. I think for anybody who wants to have read the book, if they want to come back and listen to the podcast, it's not going to be in the book, but it will link into it. Oh, and, it fits, and it fits quite neatly into the collection aspect. And you'll hopefully you'll see why as I read through it. But it was, as I say, the, the book, the story you've just told, the, the Pied Piper stuff, I say, it plays into my house. Because when I was researching my book, I was li- I was literally looking through a lot of these old myths and legends about the, the creatures around the world. Because the book that I'm writing, is it plays into the whole pie werewolf sort of legends. But when, when we look at these in sort of, um, in terms of how Hollywood presents these things, they're not, they're not anywhere close to what the actual myths and legends are. In fact, when you look at the actual myths and legends from around the world, they're very, very different. I mean, it's like you just look at things like the werewolf legends from around the world, and there's just dozens and dozens and dozens of them, and they're all different. So it's like, how do you play into that? So, yeah, this, um, it just, we're listening to your stories now. I thought, God, there's a part of me that kind of needs to go and research some of these more fairy tale aspects. These legends and myths that are in the past as well now these grim fairy tales because that could be really fascinating no, I've, I've shotgunned it now it's mine <laughs> yeah. we, also we, uh, co-author um, yeah so, so i think isn't your book coming out uh, relatively soon i think you might have uh, yeah well, it's not, not a huge amount of time for revisions this is yeah it's not not i am pretty quick at revision my life. <laughs> um, yeah no but I, I just the more i listen to when you were talking about I thought it's a fascinating subject to sort of delve into and you know i'm not sure how many I mean, maybe there are people out there who've written books like this in the past, but I've not seen any or read any, but I, I thought the story was fascinating. So, but yeah, let's hope my story can live up to yours now. <laughs> I have bit. no doubt. <laughs> we shall see. The penultimate piece. The savage storm generated waves of the South Pacific crashed noisily against the flanks of the enormous carrier, yet the rain slick deck remained perfectly level. The Akagi 2 easily displaced a quarter of a million tons, and as such, this miniature hurricane was little more than a minor inconvenience. Much like the deplorable little man who stood on his deck in the torrential rain, a man with whom he had just concluded his business. As Techmaster Takahashi turned his back and began walking toward the control tower, the deplorable little man called out to him. 
Will the Emperor of Japan be attending the Nexus Summit this year? Grand Chancellor Stormhall bellowed over the cacophony of the thunderstorm. Takahashi turned slowly. He kept his face stoic as he regarded the vampire leader, so as not to betray his disdain. He flicked his eyes toward the crate that his deck crew was unloading from Stormhall's flyer, and then back to Stormhall himself. Takahashi had everything he needed. I see no good reason to attend, he replied, and then reiterated his previously voiced dismissal. Safe travels, Grand Chancellor. He could tell that this lack of proper respect rankled the vampire leader, but the Techmaster cared not for his ruffled feathers. In his opinion, he had already displayed a greater sense of decorum than that creature deserved. With their business concluded, the sooner he was off the Akagi, the better. Without a further glance backwards, Takahashi made it to the bulkhead where his apprentice Hikari was waiting to usher him in out of the driving rain. Did the Grand Chancellor deliver what you requested? She asked eagerly. Takahashi nodded as he led her slowly down the narrow corridor towards the elevators that would carry him into the depths of his ship. Excellent, Hikari exclaimed happily. I cannot wait to see them. He knew he had a reputation for being curmudgeonly, but the excitement evident on her elfin face was enough to bring a smile to Takahashi's. Working on this project with her had been a delight. He had no children of his own, no grandchildren. There were times when he felt like Hikari may be the closest he would ever come to having them again. Bright beyond her years, with an agile mind capable of making great leaps of scientific knowledge, she was a prodigy, just as he had been at her tender age. It was only logical that he should take her under his wing and teach her all he knew. To be his protégé, Takahashi knew he was living beyond his natural lifespan. Every day he drew breath was a precious gift. Who knew how much longer he would be blessed by Omaikane? How much longer could the deity of wisdom and intelligence hold back Shinigami? How long before the death spirit took him? You will not have to wait long, Hikari, he said with a smile. I too am eager to see what the Grand Chancellor has brought us. I plan to start my work today. For this, I will need your help. Today? Hikari's voice betrayed her surprise. You do not wish to be patient? Patience. Patience is a luxury I can no longer afford, he thought to himself. I wish to learn, he replied. Go now, prepare yourself. My staff have orders to place the live subject into storage and the other to the laboratory. I shall meet you there in one hour. She nodded, performing a small, respectful bow as he entered the elevator. And as the doors closed, likewise his eyes shuttered in concentration trying to push back the now familiar pain. His pills were in his quarters. They would alleviate the symptoms for a little while. Long enough to perform the task that lay before him at least. Opening the bulkhead door, he stepped over the threshold and into what he broadly considered his home. He had lived aboard a cargi for almost 20 years now in these modestly sized yet luxurious quarters. As his illness had progressed, he had found an urgency to complete his work. If this meant residing aboard his mobile laboratory and be closer to his experiments, then so be it. He had no family to neglect after all, no one to miss him being here. No family. That was why he was doing this. Thirty years ago, the world had been engulfed in a supernatural war, fighting for their lives against monsters and demons that had commonly been regarded as myth and legend. The death hole had been horrific. Untold numbers of men, women and children had been slaughtered or turned. Families like his, his wife, his children, his grandchildren all dead. Dead because of what Grand Chancellor Stormhall and his kind had unleashed onto this world. Thus, it was with some irony that the vampire leader was delivering into his possession the very thing that would bring about his downfall. Takahashi would have his vengeance. He sat on the edge of his futon and slowly began to disrobe. 
There was a time when he would have swiftly discarded his clothing and pulled on his laboratory garments in a matter of moments. But alas, his age and his condition took their inevitable toll on his body. Now he found that even the simplest of tasks such as this took a force of will. It would be easy to simply lie back and let the darkness take him, to surrender to an easier path. But Tekahashi had work to do, and while Hikari was making excellent progress as his eventual successor, she was not yet ready to complete his work, to fulfil his legacy. This was a job that he needed to finish himself, and it was an important job. Once clothed, he made his way to the bathroom and opened the small mirrored cabinet above the sink. Row upon row of pill bottles were lined up neatly in the order in which he needed to take them, so many tiny tablets. He chuckled ruefully to himself. It is mystifying how I don't rattle when I walk, he thought. Each bottle was opened in turn and the prescribed doses of each were taken. The effects wouldn't be immediate, they never were, but he knew that in an hour or so he would feel invigorated, just in time. When he arrived at the laboratory, Hikari was waiting outside for him. She hadn't entered, knowing to do so would be disrespectful. It would be the tech master's honour to be the first to perform the research on the new specimen. And this particular specimen is one that which they had been wanting to work on for a very long time. She followed him into the lab, deferentially silent. His staff had laid out the specimen on the examination table as requested. Even deceased and motionless, the creature was quite extraordinary. It was humanoid, barely. Retaining the bipedal stance of its original victim before their DNA had been horrifically overwritten and changed beyond all recognition. What had once been human was now a monster. Slender, willowy in nature, with skin as black as the midnight sky. Oversized hands with sharp talon-like fingertips sat at the end of long skinny arms with sinewy muscle structure. The once human face was now distorted with giant almond-shaped eyes that swam a milky white above a flattened nose with oversized nostrils. And then there was that mouth. A nightmarish maw filled with rows of sharp, piranha-like teeth that flanked a pair of three-inch-long curved canine fangs that produced menacingly from the upper jaw. Adzi, Hikari said in an almost reverent tone. It's magnificent. I've waited quite some time for this, Takahashi muttered quietly. The ultimate vampire breed, an undiluted engine of death. The Adzi were the ultimate progression of the vampire lineage, a killing machine without compare. Yet it was not its prowess as a predator in which Takaheshi was interested. He cared not for its claws and teeth, or even its rumoured telepathic abilities. No, he wanted its blood. The tech master wanted the secrets of its DNA. You see, a vampiri bite could turn a human in a matter of minutes, bestowing on its victim increased agility and strength, retractable fangs and claws, enhanced night vision, and its accompanying susceptibility to bright light, and of course a more sensitive sense of smell and hearing. But as impressive as all this sounded, it was a relatively small genetic change in comparison with the full-body makeover an adzibite would force. An adzibite would completely rewrite the DNA of its victim to an even greater degree. Huge physical changes. That was the secret that he wanted. Dissecting this specimen would bring him to the brink of succeeding in his research. Once this creature's secrets were exposed, there would only be one more item left on his agenda one more specimen of which he needed to uncover the secrets. Now, all that is left to complete my collection, he whispered to himself, is a fay. Oh. Exciting. So is is um our interest, is Takashi the one of the main characters in the in the book? No he's not. <laughs> oh right, okay. So, um, there's a sequence within the book where he appears for one chapter but he will come back into play in later books much further right. down the line um 
the, not getting into too much detail, but the books themselves are like globe trotting, I guess. They, they, they follow multiple characters and multiple character arcs. And one of those character arcs will take us to the Empire of Japan, which is what the, the new Japanese, the new Japanese infrastructure is called. And Takaheshi is one of the, what they call the tech masters. They're like, essentially in the books, when it's, when we get there, the tech masters are, um, they're specialists in integrating technology and bio, biology, if that makes sense, to create like cyborg type things. Oh, cool. So, so in the books, he's, he's basically a, you don't know much about him at this point, but he will come into play much later on. And it's clear that he's been collecting things. It's clear that he's been collecting the monsters of the world, so to speak, and doing some sort of research. And we'll find out what that is much later on. Ah. So this, this sequence here ends with a chapter just after Sebastian Stormhall, who's the leader of the Vampiri Nation. He's delivered something to Takeheshi in receipt for something else. They've done a, they've done a deal to exchange things. So he drops in in the book, literally for one chapter, and then he's gone again. But he'll come back into play much later on. But oh, I just interesting, yeah. But I just when you said it was the my collection thing, I thought, God, that plays quite neatly into what Takahashi mm. in my book's been doing. He's he's collecting things himself, and that collection will come into play much much later on. There were a couple of really nice uh, turns of phrase. Um, I, I I felt like there was a bit really early on that was an excellent hint at the the sort of loss and emotional weight of the of the character of um, Takahashi when you said uh, having them again to do with family yeah his children yeah uh and that was yeah that that was a really interesting that sort of that immediately seized my attention because it's it it doesn't sound like it makes much much sense but obviously in a, in a world with things like uh vampires and fey have just having something just completely removed like that could, could happen quite easily uh, i i also enjoyed the the line uh that it was a, it was a wonder that he didn't rattle when he walked that had a real feel of uh, like uh, grandfatherly humor to me um i kind of wanted it to come across like the his um hikari who's his protege i yeah. didn't want it to come across as like some sort of weird old man young girl weird love affair or something i, I kind of mm-hmm. wanted it to come across as it's grandfatherly it's like he's taking him under taken her under his wing so to speak to shepherd her on to become his legacy if that makes sense He's yeah i think i think that comes across i think that works there's some uh some very cool stuff in there about vampire biology i like i i'm really into that that sort of end of fantasy stuff yeah so the the idea of there being those different i, I guess casts would be a good way to say it of vampire is very cool I'll tell you where this came from. What, what happened originally was I had this idea for the book originally, and it wasn't to do... I knew I wanted to have vampires in the book, and, that, and there was the, the supernatural entities. So I started Google, I just started Googling. And if you just Google vampire myths and legends, you will find there are hundreds from all over the world, and they're all different. There's like, there's African vampire myths, and there's the European vampire myths, and there's South American vampire myths, and they're all slightly different. They're all they all have the same sort of basics. There's these creatures in the night that stalk people, and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. But they're all they're all very different in that respect, if that makes sense. So I started to think, okay, what if we don't treat vampires as vampires? We treat we, if we treat vampire as a as a sort of genus like uh, or genus like dog and cat, if that makes sense. And then the vampires themselves become breeds of that. So, yeah. Like Stormhall himself, he's the, the leader of the what they what, what I call the vampiri, which is one breed, and then which are very human-like and they have very human traits. And then you've got the Adsi at the other end, who are very monstrous. They they're still stalkers of the night, and they still will bite your head off with their great big fangs and their piranha-like teeth. But they're more monstrous than human at that point. 
and there's this whole shade this spectrum of shades in between where you where i'm trying to cover as many of the vamp like sort of covered as many of the vampire myths as i as i want yeah. to delve into and the same with the werewolves as well when i when i went in to deal with the werewolf stu- stuff when i was looking into that i realized that it's not just werewolves like chapter I think it's chapter two of the book details with a character called Alexa, who's a bounty hunter, and she's hunting in the Palmas, and she's hunting a were tiger because they exist. They're from Indonesia. They're called the Huruma Judean, I think they're called. Were tiger, so, I like that. Yeah, were tiger. So I was like, so when I started uncovering these things, I thought, God, that's so cool. Why are we, why are we doing werewolves when there's were tigers out there? And why can't why can't I just drag all this in? So again, we're like almost like the Therianthrope, which is shapeshifter basically it's like an umbrella for all these different races underneath it this werewolves were tigers etc etc and that's kind of what i wanted to do i wanted to sort of think okay let's think outside the box a bit not just take the the modern mythology which we've all grown up with from watching tvs and movies what what happens if like a lot of these myths and legends from all over the world are all true but there's a reason for it just for confirmation you've got all of the werewolf types but have you got sonic the werehog (laughs) <laughs> I just need to know if we're going to get sued by anyone. I don't think we have. No, we're right. <laughs> be very right you horrible <laughs> fey creatures out there, if you want to know more about it, you're going to have to buy the book, which is out in two days from today, if you're listening on the day of release. If you're not, what are you even doing with your life? Come on. <laughs> you should be listening on day one. However, we have another story to get in. Ooh, yes. My very own Ben, and I'm going to insist on it happening immediately. <laughs> Well, here we no go. No pauses. Go, go, go. go. Ah! My collection. I always make sure I look around carefully before stepping out of my front door. The world can be deceiving. Sometimes it will appear the same, and I often need to corroborate what my eyes are seeing with information from my watch and calendar. Only when I'm sure it is definitely my front garden and my driveway will I step through. I haven't been caught out yet. I go to my job, although I'm unsure how long it actually has been mine. I get there in my car that I must have purchased at some point before I arrived. The people there talk like they know me, and I remember the frantic panic of what it was like to try and recall anything about them initially. The amount of time I'm sure of myself and what is mine stretches back only several years. Before that, I don't have anything. In the first few months, I successfully hid my confusion to any and all. Fortunately, I have no family. I did see a doctor who spoke about imposter syndrome, amnesia, fugue states and blows to the head. None of it applied to me, and I left before she could find out about my collection. You see, I know exactly who I am. I'm just not me. It was around that time that I found the first one that I could certainly say was my find. I was walking on the weekend through my town, trying to provoke sensory memories when I saw it. It stuck out of a clump of weedy greenery that had burst the pavement and partially climbed a graffiti-scarred wall. A small shining glint on an overcast day drew my eye to it, and I squatted down to investigate. It was a near-perfect sphere of metal, finished in nickel. From one side, a short rod protruded through a thick metal disc which had four holes spaced evenly near its edge. Turning it over, the squared-off rod was connected to the sphere, but not the drilled disc. A doorknob. It felt right for me to put it in my pocket and take it home. When I got to my home, I closed the front door behind me and took a long breath. My tools, which I'd found there on my first day as me, 
sat on a small stand just inside the house. I set to work busily, quickly removing the interior doorknob from my door and replacing it with the newfound one of nickel. Once the fastenings were in place, I turned it experimentally and opened my door. Beyond, it was a sparse forest, flattened by snow. The yellow from my hall light bulb made an ugly stretched rectangle of discoloration in front of me, in which my shadow squatted. I turned quickly and flicked off the light and let my eyes grow used to the night of the other place. Every edge and dip of the landscape and its foliage had been smoothed into serene banks of undisturbed whiteness. Through the painfully cold overlay of the snowy air, I could smell pine. I peered up, taking care not to push my head beyond my threshold. Above me was an imposing night sky, naked of cloud cover, and each bright point of light twinkled. I took my time, attempting to absorb every detail I could discern, before closing the door and replacing the doorknob with my own. I held those details in my head as I carried it through the rest of my house. My collection dominates every room, and it has since before I can remember. Row after row, shelf after shelf, nook after nook, my collection fills the place. Below each is a card with a reference number, date, and description. All of the cards are in my handwriting, but I didn't write that many of them. The nickel sphere was my first. I carefully continued the cataloging system, maintaining the established format. For the description, I wrote, Wintry forest, somewhere in the north perhaps, time period unknown. Could be Canada? I stored the nickel sphere in the next available slot in my collection and felt a sense of satisfaction. Through the years, I found 65 more doorknobs, latches and lever arms, all of which I have tested, all of which open upon another place, all of which I have catalogued. As a voyeur of lives, I have seen many places and times. Sometimes it is clear what the life I'm peeping on is like, and other times it is a guessing game. I am careful never to go through, as it had begun to occur to me what had happened. I was not me. I was someone else now. The creator of my collection, or perhaps even another later me in the cycle of me's. I needed to know more and began to search my collection for any clues. Thousands of doorknobs, each with my own careful handwriting appearing next to it. I found it relatively quickly, a gap early on. The numbering for the handles on either side made it clear that an item was missing. The card was gone too, so I was unable to even know what life had been mine before this one. But then I wondered, shouldn't there be another doorknob somewhere that had belonged to the other me? I searched for it through the house, for a hidden one that didn't fit in my collection. I never found it. Whoever was me, before me, I surmised had taken theirs with them when they stole my life. That there was only one gap in my collection led me to believe that I was only the second me. I resolved never to do what my predecessor had done and made sure to be careful that I didn't accidentally cross the threshold with any of my surveys. Diligently, I kept a record of everything I could see whenever I found a new one. I don't know why this happens or how they find me, but each new handle brings with it a new world to peer into. Sometimes the handles are ordinary, things of modern workmanship, fashioned from steel, brass, and nickel. Others are older alloys, pattern of covered copper or pure iron. They appear to me as precursors lost in time, and they open my front door to places I failed to describe well enough for my reference cards. 
My world goes on around me, unaware of my collection. I have found that even the strangest of happenings can become curses if they repeat often enough. I realised some time ago that I was not keeping my collection. I was a slave to it, unable to reach beyond and touch the lives I could record glimpses of. I found him a year ago, and have checked in on him often. His young life seemed full of joy, and that gave vicarious hope to my own sorry existence. His home was always filled with smells of tasty cooking and the rhythms of excellent music. From my vantage point, I could see that his parents' bookshelves were filled with knowledge and culture. I could hear that when they spoke to him, they were raising him well. Then his world changed, and I began to check in daily. It appeared the boy had become sick. The once happy house was becoming a mausoleum to a horrendous and unavoidable oncoming loss. The door suddenly stopped opening in his home and began to open in a hospital ward. The palliative care doctors and nurses strove to care for him. I knew then that I couldn't allow whoever he was to end in the universe so abruptly. I began writing what was to be a note and which became a thick sheaf of pages. In it, I wrote all that I had known about my situation and his, and why I had made the decision. I wanted to help him understand. Then came the day. I pocketed my own doorknob and placed my writing on the stand by my tools. With practiced ease, I fixed his handle onto the door and opened it. The slowing beep of monitors and the iodine smell of the hospital greeted me. With a sigh, I broke my own rule and stepped through. My last thought was that I hoped he would prefer being me. I'm not sure what emotion I'm meant to be having, Ben. <laughs> I feel quite sad. Somewhere between <laughs> sad and wonder, yeah. <laughs> it feels like, um, I, I, this is not a comparison, but you know um, the Disney movie Up, you know that scene, the, the first few minutes, mm. where you get the, the, the really... Um, condensed view of is it Carl? I think his name is in the film where you get the condensed view of his life and the joy and the tragedy. I kind of feel a bit like that. <laughs> yeah, I think I think there's a there's an angle of that. The 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 uh, the narrator isn't isn't happy. They're confused. Hmm. They yeah. they try and make a go of it for a little while, and they see an opportunity to do something good with the strange um, strange situation they find themselves in, and then they take it. At, the, at their own expense, yeah. It's an excellent read on that opportunity for compassion when faced with what is essentially a superpower that is nice. Because it's not a, you know, you can fly or you've got super strength power where you can save people all the time. But having some sort of unusual gift and then being able to use it to save someone, whether that is a good thing or not, is... It's a really interesting take on a like as as a case study of a person and it's i don't know it's kind of it set me off thinking about you know what what do i think i would do if i woke up one morning in a different place and i didn't know who i was and didn't know where i was and what would that lead me to do what choices would it with that information to as well that, yeah that getting like it i wanted it very much to be that he was he had somehow had some kind of um, like holdover from his previous personality when yeah. he was sort of dragged into this um, this life that had been sort of supplanted his own. Um, so that was very much the angle. Like this, this guy is very cautious. He's um, very um, 
like borderline agoraphobic. Yeah. Um, and uh, and he's he's sort of um, he's he's a victim, you know. Um, so you know, whereas some people might sort of be like, "Oh, this is excellent! I can go back to the dinosaurs or whatever." You know, he's he even before he sort of figures out what's happening, he doesn't want to. He doesn't really have the courage to step beyond the threshold into the into the new places. Um, the, it's interesting that you say you know he's a he's a victim because he's trying to to save the next person. He's trying to become the hero, but that you know the the implication could be there that is is he making the next person into a victim by saving them or? I think that's why he writes the note. Yeah. Um, he he's trying to do something different. He's trying to excuse better. Like, yeah, yeah, do it better. Yeah, and do it for the, do it for a good reason rather than because he doesn't know why his life was taken because he doesn't know what his previous life was. Um, oh, man. Where did the inspiration for that come from? Have you? Uh, I have no idea. I, I have actually no idea. Um, the I was I was thinking about collections, and for some reason, I thought, wouldn't it be strange if somebody had a collection of doorknobs that opened? the same door into different places yeah and because that was literally it didn't it didn't come from anywhere that i can note really yeah i just i say it comes uh, talking pixar it comes from like um it reminded me of, not reminded me of monsters inc a little bit but you know the the whole ah uh, yeah. yeah yeah and yeah 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 i was kind of in that that sort of mode from it i was thinking are these what with the doors going to various different places that's kind of what struck me from i mean at first mm. when you first mentioned it i had there was sort of Narnia vibes to it at first. I was like, oh, and then because I was, you were talking about, I really like the phrase, the, what was it, the painfully cold overlay of white or something. And I thought, well, this sounds cool. And then it was like, um, so I had this like sort of, he's, he's going to a different place kind of vibes that were coming from that initial sort of first opening couple of paragraphs. And then, and then it took like a little turn into somewhere I wasn't really expecting, if that makes sense. Um, and then, and then I started to get when you were talking about all the different doorknobs and all the different doors open to different places, so to speak, or doors open to different places. I, I say I was. I, then I, I started thinking, did, were you watching Monsters Inc? And that's where the inspiration <laughs> came from. I think um, it's it's a thought, there is a sort of trope, isn't there, in in general fantasy literature, which I guess Monsters yeah. Monsters Inc. was sort of um, uh, aping to a certain degree, like uh, portals as a concept. Yeah, they have power. Like you mentioned, Narnia. Um, there, there are a whole bunch of examples of uh, doors or um, other, like you know, like the mouth of a cave or this kind of thing leading to another world. Yeah. Um, another book I've read recently, actually, there's a guy. Um, there's an author called Eaton Crone. Um, I don't know if you come across him. And not at all. No, sorry. He writes. Um, they're like comedy satire books, I guess. They're very Hitchhiker's Guide in their in their style and their feel. But I've read his first book. It's called A Life Spectacular, and that. It's a really funny book, a really, really good. But he's the concept behind that book is that there's a guy, um, called Guy, I think, um, basically opens his closet one day and walks into it, and he he ends up in an alien body on another world. So the, 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 his closet becomes his portal to him living a totally different life um, in this alien body. And that just, it just, again, I, I, I was struck by sort of not parallels, but it gave me that sort of vibe as well. It's well worth it promoting somebody else's book now it's well worth a read if you if you if you are into that sort of douglas e. adams sort of comedy sort of aspect because mm. it's, it's very sci-fi comedy in that respect it's this guy's trying to like adjust his life in a new alien body in this world that he doesn't know but um yeah i sort of got vibes sort of that quantum little. leap vibe as well perhaps yeah quantum leap yeah. as well god that's a blast from the past isn't it mm. that's, um, yeah but yeah 
yeah, this whole living in somebody else's life in somebody else's body. That you, yeah, very much so. A, uh, a really powerful choice to have it to create this character who has no frame of reference, mm. and therefore, when they have access to all of the wonders of the world, they can't really see it as as a wonder necessarily because they don't know what their normal is. Yeah, yeah, the. I think there is a line in there about um, uh, even the strangest things becoming curses if they repeat. Often yeah. Yeah. And yeah, this idea that this is just this guy's reality. He doesn't have any, as you say, like he has no frame of reference. All he knows is that he's got a deep feeling that something very bad has happened to him. He can't know more about it because that's been denied to him by the previous person. And he's got access to these these powers. And for whatever reason, he just keeps the status quo ticking inside this life, which is just a catalogue, the doorknobs. I, I think that's it. It's in both your telling and the writing of it, the the show of how mundane it is to him is what really sells that idea. That to him, it's just, okay, new doorknob, make sure it's labelled, it goes in the correct spot in the box, done. Mm. Rather than it being some wonderful adventure every time. That's, yeah, that really sends home that idea. I mean, it does. You're right. It sends home the idea of like, if you had these powers that everybody else in the world considers something super, you know, maybe people are like, oh, mate, you've got these amazing powers. But if you're living with them, does it become humdrum after all? Does it become ordinary? It just, it just becomes the way you are, if that makes sense. And you, you kind of get that sort of melancholic feeling from it a little bit. Yeah, this is just what I do. No, this I'm the doorknob man. Well, speaking of humdrum <laughs> and melancholic. It's time once again for the questions, Ben. I love questions. What? Don't say like that. You make it weird. (laughs) (laughs) I love questions. (laughs) Well, then. You're you're bringing the Marlon Brando to it. I didn't didn't put them (laughs) Well, then you're going to love this, Ben. (laughs) I'm scared now. John. Yes. John, John, John. Too many Johns. What are you reading at the moment? What am I reading at the moment? Uh, oh my god, my pile of books is so big. Um, I'm currently reading. I mean, you had, um, I think you had Anna on the the podcast yes. recently. Uh, um, well, she shall be on the podcast in the future. Oh, excellent. Well, I'm currently re- I'm currently arc reading her sequel to her uh, Beyond Blue Eyes book at the moment. I'm reading Beyond Blue Eyes Two: Fallen Angels, which I'm really enjoying. So I'm arc reading that. Um, I've also reading um, a book called uh, Once Upon a Death by Desintra Sullivan, if you've met her on Twitter. So those are the two books I've got on the go at the moment, amongst other things. But I do, I have a tendency to be really active buying, um, especially indie authors books that I've met in the in the Twitter writing community. And oh, that's the, good. That's good to promote. I love them. Um, so sometimes you feel some, it's, it's, it feels like a shame sometimes because maybe some of these slip through the cracks a little bit sometimes, I guess. I don't know. But I tend to really enjoy some. You tend to find some really good stuff in there. So I've got a pile on my bedside cabinet that's literally about three feet tall at the moment with books that I've bought that I haven't got around to reading yet, but there's loads. But as I say, on top of that, as I say, I've been reading, I've been arc reading Anna's book and then um, reading Desintra's book as well, which is both of them are great. I'm kind of flip-flopping between the two at the moment. When I've, like Desintra's book is more comedy. It's, it's, it's much lighter in tone. Whereas I think, you know, from talking to Anna, her books are very, they're, they're, it's a cyberpunk type of affair. So it's yeah. very, and it's quite gritty and it's got violence and sex and God knows yeah, what. In it, well, so. 
our uh, our, list, our listeners have that to look forward to. She'll be uh, she'll be her episode will be coming out uh, relatively soon, I think. So depending on how I feel, it depends on which book I go for and which particular evening. But I am enjoying both of them; they're both great. So, um... so a follow up question to that is: mm-hmm. what's the what's the best book you've ever read? Oh my god! Now you're asking. Um, the best book I've ever read, or the book I go back to, I guess, is a question. Which one jumped into your mind first? War of the Worlds is the is the book I've read, probably read more than any other book. Oh, absolute banger! Um, I love that book for some, for some reason. I don't exactly know what it is, but I remember buying it. Or, well, I remember being bought it when I was a kid by my parents, and and I've just read it so many times, and I, I always come back to it, love it to bits. Um, so you're you're sort of unsure as to why is that right you're not entirely sure why why it's the i've always had a leaning to sci-fi i think that like the sci-fi leaning has been from quite an early age mm. um and i just don't know why that book really strikes as such a chord with me and it's just something i always come it's not a very long book it's the, like it's it's shorter than you think um i, I honestly don't know it just it's it encapsulates everything that you that you kind of wanting a sci-fi book i guess you've got your you've got the the, the you, i mean it's very it's a period piece so it's very very set in its period but there's this whole alien invasion thing which i'm a sucker for i'm a sucker for an alien invasion movie or book that you know to, you know, i'll watch anything that's got that and even if it's dreadful um it's got that in it so you've got this this sort of the mystery and the action aspect and then you've got the survival aspect which i really enjoy and then the science sort of behind it as well which is very the, the fact that you know the aliens were defeated by the common cold which is very you know we've we've seen that trope a million times now but that's where it kind of started i guess and the fact that something so small you know we don't you don't have to have these huge alien space battles and something it can be something really small that just that that's that wins the day for you i like that mm. concept I, I just really do and that book has just always struck a chord with me so you said you read some some bad sci-fi books oh have you got a worst <laughs> book you've ever read worst book i've ever read oh yeah now you don't have to have finished it. That's uh... <laughs> trying to think now. You barely um, have to have started it. <laughs> I don't. I couldn't really pick one off the top of my head at the, currently at the minute. I guess um, that's a really tough question. Well, if we if we we can recouch the question a little bit, which is: Is there anything that instantly turns you off when you're reading a book? I have. Yeah, I have a real bugbear with perfect characters. If that makes sense. Okay. I I, I, really, I can't bond. It's the old Marvel DC argument, I guess. Like I, I, it's strange the way to put it down to that. But if you give you give me Spider Man and you give me Batman, for instance, like I'm way more inclined to read a Spider Man story than I am to read a Batman story. Well, Batman's great and all, but I don't relate to a to a billionaire who has his dinner served to him by a butler and has the, all the gadgets he wants and he's just a bit a bit depressed because his mum and dad died when he was young. Mm-hmm. But I do relate to someone who goes through the struggles of, of life being a kid or whatever. It, you know, I mean, I'm old, too old for that now. But you get what I mean? It's like the whole, I, I don't find the one relatable when I do find the other. So if, I've, if I'm looking, if I'm reading a book where that character doesn't have flaws and doesn't have a pro, like a problem, um, then I have a problem with that. It's like, it instantly just turns me off. I don't find those characters compulsive. Um, think of the Harry Potter books, for instance, if you, if you go down that route as well. Like Harry Potter as a character He's, you know, he's the one that wins the day, beats Voldemort, et cetera, et cetera. But he's not an all-powerful character in the day. He's a, he's a character that bumbles through his life, basically stumbling into victory after victory because he's got good friends. It's And that kind of, in some ways, makes him a more compulsive character than it would if they'd have made him some super genius 
prodigy widget wizard that you know could do everything and that's kind of where i'm coming from really if i come across a book where i've got a character who's just too perfect you know and a lot unfortunately there's a lot of authors out there who will write them like that like they'll turn around and say oh this my character boris or whatever it is he's gifted he's the he's the best athlete in the world he's got this superpower that's the best in the world he's the most intelligent person in the world blah 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 and those kind of books just turn me off i don't want to see someone who's got the gifts i want to see someone who's struggling with that mm. so it's interesting that you mentioned in particular it's it's how like a main character is yeah um, it is sort of shown to the reader and and written generally because our next question is do you have a favorite literary character so is there any is there a particular literary character that typifies exactly what you want from a main character you know what i'm gonna blow smoke up anna's backside here because like i've i've been reading these um anna's um i say these behind blue eyes books and i read the first one and sorry if you're listening anna when i started reading it she's got a character in that book called nephilim and at first i was kind of like oh this character just seems too perfect for me and i was a little bit out at first for the first couple of chapters i was like I don't know if this is going to see me, but as that book went on, I really started to enjoy it. Like, she she turns Nephilim into a really flawed character in a lot of senses, and I really enjoyed that. And I, I've got to say, of all the books I've read recently, like I've really enjoyed that character. Um, I've really enjoyed... Um, I have a real sort of sci-fi superhero sort of bent anyway. And I've also read... Uh, is it Marissa Meyer that did the Renegade books? If, I don't know if you've read those. They're they're basically like superhero type books. There's it was a trilogy. I think Renegades was the first one, and she has a character in that. I'm forgetting the name off the top of it, but that's really she's really good as well. Um, what's her name? I can't think. But again, another very flawed character. She's like um, she's like a villain who double who double agents as a hero. So there's this very flawed makeup to her. This very sort of conflicted makeup, and I really like that. That's another character I really bonded with quite quickly and if i bond with a character like that it makes me want to read more so when i read the first renegades book for instance i instantly went back and bought the next two because i was like oh i'm loving this i need to have the next two now to see what, mm. what happens in the trilogy and it's been the same with anna's book this um behind blue eyes when the minute she offered me the the ability to arc read for her second book to go for that i was like yeah jump at the chance give me that i'm, I'm well in for some more nephilim that's great so yeah that's so those been uh, historically other characters I think um i mean i that's a difficult question i'm trying to think i mean war of the world you, know, you don't really bond with the character now it's more the story i guess mm, yeah it's um, a story isn't it and i say I've, I've enjoyed like the harry potter books and the lord of the rings books and the game of thrones books but i wouldn't say that there's any particular character i'd actually say well i love that character and i need to say more about them i tend to be like i'd say i tend to it's the it's a story more than anything, but as I said, the, the the character really jumped out to me lately, and Anna will love me for saying this is Nephilim in her in her Beyond Blue Eyes book. That it's okay. I'm really enjoying that. Well, I, I believe uh, Nephilim will be uh, turning up in uh, in, in a later in, in the podcast, so uh, we'll have to get you to tune in for that one. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I will. So I know people can find this out on your website because I did earlier, but what is your writing process? I tend to use something called the Spreadsheet of Doom, um, which you may have read about if you've been to the website. I, everything is meticulously plotted on that spreadsheet. The reason I did it on there is because I, I've i written shorter stories before, like maybe like um, stories from the aspect of one character or maybe that, maybe a couple of characters, but never written anything on the grand scale of, not really written anything on the grand scale of, of um, the Ballad of the Songbird before, which is what I'm writing now, which, can, which has five major characters and a cast of hundreds of 
secondary characters. And because it's a seven book series and because there's so much going on with it, it it made it very difficult for me to approach it in a in a sort of very linear fashion, I guess, like I'd approach normally writing a book or a, or a story or something like that. Because I've suddenly got this arc plot that I need to plot in. I, and I need to go from the start of book one to the end of book seven, but I also need to make each book interesting in its own right. So each book has its own driving force. So that meant plotting everything out in advance, um, which took me a while to do. And I've got, as I say, I've got this spreadsheet, which I call the spreadsheet of doing, which is huge. And that's where everything gets plotted first. So I create on the spreadsheet first and make sure everything interlinks together and goes through there. And then I tend to write when I'm writing the book itself, I tend to write the, the <laughs> I tend to write the bits that I'm more interested in, I guess. So I tend to flit around. So for instance, Songbird, uh, the, the Hunters, the first of the Songbird books had, it's got something like 82 chapters in it, I think, which sounds quite a lot for chapters, but the chapters are quite short because I don't tend to go for chapter breaks. I tend to break to a different chapter when it's a different character perspective. So that makes it quite nice and easy for me to, to flit around the book and jump from character to character. So like, for instance, in, in the 81 chapters, Gail, who's my, my mate, my primary character, she's got probably about 14 of those 80 odd chapters, 14 or 15 of those chapters. So I tend to write her arc first. So I'll mm. flip between chapters writing Gail's arc. And then I'll go back to the start and I'll pick up Alexa, for instance, uh, and write her arc through. And then I might jump back and pick up Michael and write his arc through. And then, because it, it helps you, rather than doing it in chapter order, so to speak, where you, you know, I might write chapter one, which is this, chapter two is Gail, chapter three, somebody else, chapter four, somebody else, chapter five, somebody else, chapter six, somebody else, and you get back to Gail by chapter seven. But at that point, it's only get to chapter seven, you've got to try and remember what you did with Gail in chapter two and where she left off. So I found it easy just to write them in arcs. So just say, right, this is Gail's arc, this is Michael's arc, this is... So it's, it sounds fascinating. That it sounds like you, you plot very heavily, which is which is a really yeah. um, exciting way to to do it. Because I'm sure that it means that you can sort of see everything that's going to happen before it before it happens. But seven books is quite a lot to plot in it before the first one comes out. I would like from what I because from what I've sort of read and from yeah, talking to right. other people, that's that's a lot of books to plot in the, advance. The way it works is that I've got. In the spreadsheet, I've got all seven books, but books, book one and book two and book three are currently fully plotted. So I've got them fully plotted, so to speak. I know which chapters deal with which things. I'm currently writing book three at the moment. Now, even while I'm going through the writing pro writing stages, some of those chapters may change because as you know from writing, things kind of sometimes take on a little life of their own. Like in book one, for instance, there's, there's, but the very um, the second chapter, I think it is, chapter two, details a character called Zara. And Zara is, um, she's a bounty hunter. And she was supposed to kind of be a throwaway character in book one. It was a character that I kind of thought I need, I needed a driving force behind the narrative in book one. It's something that, that takes the reader from the start of the book to the end of the book. So she's on this like hunt mission, basically, which gives us our, our narrative backbone for book one. Whereas a lot of the other characters kind of satellite at that point. They're kind of floating around that, that arc in doing their own thing. But then these arcs will start to in, like come together in later books. A bit Game of Thrones-ish, if you know what I mean, where, you know, yeah. Jon Snow's bumbling around in Winterfell for the first, you know, part of the Game of Thrones saga. But then later on, all the characters start like pulling together as you see where all the story arcs start to intersect. So Alexa was always supposed to be a bit of a throwaway, or Zara was supposed to be a bit of a throwaway character originally. But the more I wrote her, the more I started to enjoy writing her. And then you start to find that that character starts to take on more importance than you originally envisaged for them, which then affects book two and book three and beyond. Yeah. So, so books four to seven, are 
loosely plotted but not fully plotted yet i know what i know what the, each book's arc is going to be but i just don't know the details within the arc yet if that makes sense obviously things that i write in one book affect the next book and they also sometimes put things that i've got in the current book will affect the, the most recent book what i found a lot was when i was writing book two i'd write stuff in book two that was having a direct effect on book one backwards like retrospectively so and that becomes the trickiest bit with writing a saga it's like there comes a point when you actually have to nail it down and you actually have to say right book one is now done and you can't change it anymore mm-hmm. you know you, i mean technically because because i'm self-publishing through amazon i can keep uploading new files to that thing if i wanted to and keep <laughs> the book but technically but realistically you can't really do that you've just got to nail it down and say right this is the definitive line in the sand this is where that book finished i can't change it anymore so at some point before march the 17th there will be a sign-off process for that book which will say actually that's it can't change it. it's it's because once it's gone out to the public on the 17th, that's where it, that's where it's set in stone. How exciting. One of the interesting things I did with book one was, I don't know if you've been on the website, I did a casting call um, where I do like, um, I got my beta readers to cast the characters from the book as if I was making a movie or a TV show. And it was a really interesting, it was a really interesting exercise in how other people see the characters in the book. That actually takes us on really perfectly to our next question. Because it is, if you could adapt any book into another medium, and that doesn't just have to be film, it could be TV, it could be a musical, it could be a board game, a role-playing game, whatever you fancy, what would it be to what and why? Now, throwing aside the fact that I've always, like, we mentioned War of the Worlds a minute ago, I've always wanted to see an original, a proper War of the Worlds translation, okay? That's been my bugbear for years. Um I quite you like. Haven't, you haven't got beef with Jeff Wayne's one, have you? Because we might be. About oh, to have I love words. the Jeff Wayne show. That's good, great. Good, good, good. Um, I love the musical, but do you know what I mean? Like they've translated that that book to TV and film, and they've never done it right. Not yeah. really. The closest I ever saw, and for the, I can't get a hold of this. And if anybody knows where I can get a hold of it, it'd be great. Because obviously they they did the 1960s. I think it was 1960s or 1950s version, or whatever it was. There was that one. There was then the the Tom Cruisey one, which was set in the modern day. They yeah. then had that god-awful bbc tv drama they did out last year which was which was weird um but they've never done one that's properly set during its era if that makes so that's what i wanted that that done as a proper thing they did there was a there was a um i don't know who it was i think think on the history channel in america they did a documentary like a mock documentary series about what as if that war as if war of the worlds had really happened and they would show me footage from the time and all sorts and I remember watching it once and thinking, this is great. Why can't, but I've, I've looked for it on DVD since and I cannot find it. Like a, you know, like a, almost like a, what do they call it? Like a mock, it's like a mockumentary. It's as if that yeah. had actually happened. Yeah. They were interviewing people, you know, about it, like historians and saying, and they were talking about the, the military. And I thought that was fascinating to take that concept and imagine it actually happened and do a documentary about it as if it happened. Not like a documentary about the book or the TV show, but about the actual happening of it happening, if that makes sense. Mm. There's a few of those sort of things knocking about. There was, mm. just after Walking with Dinosaurs happened, they did a mock one that was dragons, but done in, presented in exactly the same way as if they were real things. Mm. And it was, yeah, oh, so cool. I can see that being very cool. Yeah, I'd love that. I'd, uh, I'd, other ones, um, I read... Um, I mean, this has already happened, but I did. I remember reading the, um, what's his name, the Expanse series of books, the Leviathan Wakes, and stuff like that. Uh, James S. S. James S. A. Corey, but it's yeah, yeah. Um, it's actually two different, um, two different men, and that's their combined pen name, isn't it? I forgot. Hi, Hi, Frank, and somebody else. 
can't uh, on head. But yeah, I always wanted it. I thought that would make an awesome show. Or well, it has. I I, I would say that's uh, the expanse is. Um, I don't I don't know if we've got any, anybody listening that uh, that enjoys it, but that is a fantastic, fantastic show. So, is there anything in particular that you would adapt? So, rather than what other people have already yeah, adapted, I think. I mean, this. I'm just trying to think. Well, my book collection downstairs, and thinking, what have I got down there that hasn't already been tra- adapted into some way, shape, or form? I mean, I like. I've I've been a long-term reader of the Jeffrey Deaver books as well. Like I'm, I I tend to lean towards sci-fi and fancy myself, but on occasion I will dip into like crime books. And um, I do read Jeffrey Deaver, who did The Bone Collector, which was made into a movie with Denzel Washington. I think it became a TV series last year as well. But um, you, I turned that into a board game. <laughs> oh right, <laughs> like a Cluedo-esque Who Did It board game. Oh, okay. um, I could do that. Um, what else have I got there? I'm just trying to. I'm, so I'm visually trying to picture my bookcase downstairs and see what else I've got that we stand in, which we haven't had turned into anything else. It's, it's, we're just living. A world I, I feel like uh, the uh, um, the Cluedo style murder mystery board game <laughs> is a perfectly reasonable answer to that question. Yeah, it's. it's, it's, it's I'm just looking at. It, I'm thinking oh, everything we everything I've got downstairs on my on my little library is like. Unless we're talking about the indie books that I've been collecting lately, which haven't like hit that sort of major market, everything's sort of been picked up and just done somewhere in some way, shape, or form. Well, that's fair enough. We can uh, we can move on to the next question, which is: um, Are you the kind of person that uh, that is capable of crying whilst reading? Like, you know, if, can a, can a book move you to the point where you're crying? And if so, oh, God, when yes. did you last when did you last cry whilst reading? Uh, when did I last cry when cry when reading? I mean, I have <laughs> I have been brought to tears by my own writing because it's so bad. Um, then, uh, <laughs> You'd be surprised how often that that is the answer. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Um, when was the last time I was moved to tears by a book? I, I, I okay. I, I can't. I couldn't tell you when, but I have. I have a real tendency to be moved, not so much by words, but my music. I guess yeah. music tends to strike a more a deeper chord in me than words do in some respect but very often i'll do this like the two things at the same time i'll very often be listening to music while i'm reading at the same time and sometimes those two things in combination will have an effect on me um so that um, i mean the last time i cried to any as i say i did cry while i was writing my own book because there's there's some particularly especially in the late like talking about my own book saga like when you get to some of the later books i've already written some of it i've already written some of the later like book six and seven chapters which can deal with some really quite sad stuff um and i tend to be moved into a musical mode as well so like when i'm writing chaps i tend to find a a song that reflects the emotion that i want to feel when i'm writing if that makes sense um so and there are times when sometimes when i'm so when i'm writing these things it's not that my writing i think is moving it's more that i'm in that that place where i'm writing something where the music has pushed me to a point where i can get quite emotional about things and the same is true when i'm reading books as well like um i say i can't think the last time it happened but but yeah, I tend to listen to music while I'm reading a lot of the time. Sometimes the combination of the two will have me getting quite. Is it sort of the accidental, sort of accidental combo of the two? So when, when you know a song shuffles on and it happens to reach a crescendo at exactly the right moment, that, that some, there's something building up. Yeah, like for, in, like for instance, you know the the Evanescence song, My Immortal. Yes. It's a very sad song. I think it's about the I think the the singer I can't remember now, but I think it's about the death of her brother, isn't it? And uh, she's yeah. coming to terms with that. If I'm if I happen to, if that happens to be on the on the on my you know on my song stream when I'm reading a sad chapter in the book it will it will break me because I get into this real mode where the music's pushing me to a place where I'm in a particular emotional state and then the book words will push me 
further across that edge, if that makes sense. Mm, that it's, something, sense. it's something I've played into in my book a little bit. I, and I've, I have said, I was talking to my my editor the other week, and because some of the book titles, people might not notice, but some of the chapter titles sorry, in the book are song titles. And that's usually reflective of the song I was listening to when I was reading the chapter. So that's where it comes from. And I did say that one day I might put like an Easter egg list on the um, on my website about which cha- what I was listening to when I was reading the, when I was writing those chapters. So if oh, people wanted to, they could go and listen to the same music I was re- I was listening to when I was writing it. Writing. Now talking of Easter eggs and facts, it's time for Nico's favorite question. Yes, <laughs> gang, it's that time again where I completely derail the book podcast with a question not about books. Okay. So, and this is the the finest question ever penned by humankind. If he does say so himself. <laughs> and I fucking do. <laughs> John. Waiting with bated breath now. <laughs> Can... Oh, you are no, about no, no, to no. be totally disappointed. So <laughs> keep building up. So before I unleash this masterwork now, prepare your body because I am asking <laughs> you the question that is <laughs> what? Can you tell me? Well, I don't know. I said what? It's not part of the question. <laughs> it's John, all part of the bro- mystique of the question. I've broken. Can you tell me one genuinely uninteresting fact about yourself? An uninteresting fact? Oh my god! Uh, not that I have any interesting ones to be honest, but um, uninteresting fact. I don't even know what class is an uninteresting. Fact. Every fact I think of seems interesting in some way, shape, or form. Um, I drive a Ford Mondeo. Is that uninteresting enough? <laughs> Ford Mondeo. Now, what colour is it? That's Silver. my first question. Very Silver. It's an estate as well. There you go. Do I'm you have <laughs> any stickers or accoutrement attached no, to no, it? Not even a sticker on it. Wow, not you're like to make factory it fresh. <laughs> Good grief. It's, it's an old one. The, the dog sits in the back. It's just, yeah, it's just bug standard. Well, hang on. The, the dog sits in the back permanently or only when you're traveling with the she's, dog? She's standing there now. I just leave oh, her. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> just a kennel with wheels. Yeah, I just pop out there to feed her once in a blue moon. Um, <laughs> no. Um, yeah, that, that's probably the moment. I don't know. And uh, do you ever leave it unlocked and watch your home address? <laughs> no, I don't, to joke, no, I don't leave it unlocked. But joking, as, joking aside, when we had the, um, <laughs> I say never leave it unlocked. You know, the, the, the I don't know, I don't know where you guys are based in the world, but I'm in the Midlands, um, which you can probably tell from my accent. But um, we had that cold snap. Was it last week or the week before? Where it got really cold. Just, just yeah, got to like minus yeah. four or whatever it was, minus five. Um, me and the wife were going out one day, and we were supposed to be taking my car, and. Jess, my wife, walks around the passenger side. She lets it, I unlock the car. She lets herself in. And I went to open my door and it was frozen shut. The locks were all frozen. So I was like, nuts. So to prove the concept, I opened the back door and found that that door would open, but then because the locks were frozen, it wouldn't shut again. So I was like, oh, are you kidding me? So I like pushed the door shut, but then walked away from it and left it overnight unlocked because we couldn't lock it. So there you go. Well, it sounds like it was an icicle anyway, so I don't think anybody else would have had much use. You couldn't get into the driving seat because the driver's door was locked and I had the keys. But yeah, the door was the car was unlocked that night because the car was frozen. But uh, You but can no, sort of imagine like a would-be thief thinking they'd possibly not struck gold, but they'd struck a silver Mondeo for sure. And, then, mean, and then trying to open the driver's door and it's just not working. Yeah, I could see it. I, I mean, I, it. I, I did have my... I did have, not this car, but I did have a previous car burgled overnight because I left it unlocked. So that has happened to me. 
Um, I had to, back in the day, I had an Alfa Romeo and accidentally left it unlocked overnight. And when I got in the car next morning, somebody had been through the car, the glove box was open, and everything. That's quite a big leap, isn't it? Alfa Romeo to Ford Mondeo. That's a... Yeah. No, it... they rhyme. They're basically the same car. I don't know anything <laughs> about cars. Is that true? Um, <laughs> it was, it was, uh, I got married. That was. There was a period of time when I when I wasn't married and I had lots of disposable income and I had an Alfa Romeo and then I got married and got a Ford Mondeo estate. So there you go. Tale to be told. Uh, your upcoming work. Do you want to just sort of tell us uh, what it is and where people can get it? Yes. So um, I have a book coming out on the 17th of March. It's called Hunters. Uh, it's the first book in a seven book series called The Ballad of the Songbird. Um, the just I don't I mean I don't know how geek culture you guys are but the Ballad of the Songbird is an homage sort of reference to I used to be a big comic book geek when I was a kid um, and I used to read a book by Alan Gibson I think it was in the day called The Ballad of Halo Jones yeah so I kind of always wanted to use that in a book title so that's where that comes from there's an Easter egg for you um, so yes Ballad of the Songbird book one Hunters just to interrupt out. that to yeah. say my band has a song called the ballad of jack mccall which is named for the exactly the same thing really oh my uh -huh. god I, originally when i was originally when i was gonna do it i i it was under the pet the working name of the ballad of the songbird for ages and i was talking to my editor the one day and i thought i should perhaps shorten it to just songbird the songbird series and she said no nah, it's a really cool name just keep it as the ballad of the songbird and i said that comes from the fact that i used to read one of my favorite comic book character comic book sort of graphic novels and comic book series when I was a kid was the, the Ballad of Halo Jones. Um, and that's kind of where that came from. So she said, no, keep it, keep the Ballad of the Songbird. So I did. So there you go. That's where that came from. But it's interesting. And the book one, book one is called The Hunter, correct? Or is it Hunter? It's Hunters. Yeah. Hunters. Uh, book go. one is called Hunters. It's basically, it's a multi-character sort of arc, if that makes sense. There's multiple characters within it. But the first book, they all have some connection to the word Hunters. I don't know. Do you want me to tell you about the, the synopsis for the book or just yeah, definitely yeah give people okay. the synopsis for the book yeah so yeah so it, basically what what i did was i i postulated that 2016 just just gone a few years back there was an event that that happened in the world called the rising and the rising was where all these um what we consider myths and legends um vampires werewolves god knows what they're, they're i've thrown everything in there they, they basically rose up and there was this big global war, global catastrophe that sort of called the human race. And what it did is it left the world a very different place. Eventually, it was the Fae that came and put a stop to it. The story of the Risings, it starts in like the North Americas and spreads from there. And when it reaches Europe, the Fae, who are considered like old magic, I guess, although magic isn't really doesn't really have a place in my book in that respect, but they stopped it when it got to Europe and they put a, they put a whole kibosh onto it. And the world's stabilized at that point, but it's a very different place. So we have North America that's a vampire continent now. Basically, it's, it's now owned and run by the Vampiri. They're, that's what they are. And a Canada that's just above it is a werewolf nation. Um, so there's, but there's these factions around the world now. The world is now broken into these faction states where they're not countries anymore. They're now states. Like um, the UK is the, is the sort of capital country of what's called the Federated States of Europa, which is Europe. Um, there's also like a hint to the fact that there's this new mountain range that's appeared in sort of um, Eastern Europe, which has separated us from Russia and Russia's gone dark and hasn't been heard of for 30 years because now I forward the clock to 2045. So all this stuff has happened in the past. I mean, you join the action in 2045 when this is an established world now. This is just what it is. But, and you will pick up clues as to what, why the world is that way as the book goes on or as the series goes on. And then the book details um, a number of different story arcs from a number of different characters. So there's Gail, who's my main character. She's 
she's a, an ex well she's a soldier she's a hun she's she used to run um uh she used to run a team of um human fey hybrids that were called the hunters the 137 hunters they were like basically their job was to hunt down rogue monsters and kill them um she when you meet her in the book she's very bitter and very broken because she's grieving the loss of her team her team were killed in an incident she refers to as bloody valetta you don't know what the incident is yet that that's just dropped into that very first chapter that she's very bitter about that but you'll find that out much later on in the book series um then you've got Michael, who's another teacher at the academy that she's going to teach at. And you've got her sister, Alison, who's a security chief at a place called Nexus City, which is where all the different factions come together to have like a yearly summit where they, they try and hash out the peace of the world, if that makes sense. And then we've got Zara as well. Zara's another character, and she's she's been she's a bounty hunter who basically hunts monsters for money, and she's picked up to do to pursue a rogue mon a rogue werewolf in in the forests of Canada. So you've got these these various different stories where you've got these characters who are all separate, but they eventually they will all interlink together. So when you start reading the book, you, you kind of in the position where you're thinking, where's all this going? You've got, I've got all these separate characters in different parts of the world, but how do they all interrelate? And eventually they all start coming together very Games of Thrones style where, you know, the, the, the stories interlink. How exciting. It sounds good. Where about can people um, get it? So the book will be available on Amazon. Um, it'll be available in Kindle and paperback, and there's also plans for a hardback version as well. Um, although Ooh. I've got to decide how that one's going to work. I'm a sucker for a hardback book. One of the things I really wanted was the hardback version of Hunters when it came out. So um, I had to organise that through a company called Ingram Spark, um, but I'm trying to get it onto Amazon as well. So there will be a hardback version if you want to splash out for that, although that will be expensive. Yes. Wow. But the, the Kindle version, and there'll be a paperback version as well, which we'll be able to get from Amazon. So our final question is, other than in a silver for Monday driving around the Midlands, <laughs> yes. where can people find you? I, um, I have a website. Uh, you can find me on the website. The website is johnfordauthor.com. So you should be able to find me on there. It's relatively straightforward. Um, you can pretty much find everything you need to know about me on there. I, it's, I, I always wanted a website that was not just a business card. It was more of a, of a, of a, a word. A, it's, it's my world, so to speak. So you'll find loads on there. I do a blog on there. Um, there's character profiles for the characters in the book. There's history of the world of the book. There's oh, there's all sorts going on there. There's your cast, your casting call is also on there, correct? Casting call is also on yeah. there, yeah. So that's, um, that's an interesting thing. To, so it's in, it'd be interesting to see if people read the book, what they think of the casting call and how they did it. But the, that gives you my idea as to what, how I had in my head when I was writing the books. But you'll also find me on Twitter at underscore Nightingale underscore, and the Nightingale has a K on it. Like, as in a midnight, yes, yeah. yes. Bird that... in armor. <laughs> Excellent. So, we've got uh, that's uh, Twitter and your your blog. Uh, uh, the blog is on the website, yeah. So, you can find me on there. I do have an Instagram, but I can't remember it off the top of my head, and I never use it anyway. So, <laughs> to find me on there. And you can also <laughs> find me as you can also find me as John Ford author on Facebook if you want to go and find me on there as well. Well, excellent. It's been lovely having you, lovely speaking to you, and that's lovely great. Here. I loved it. yeah. Um, and uh, I hope everyone else will uh, check you out. Thank you very much for your time and for the uh, for the podcast. It's been great. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks for joining us. Thank you all for joining us on this episode of the Tiny Bookcase. Make sure you're subscribed to the podcast on your chosen service so that you don't miss out on future episodes. You can follow us on Twitter at Bookcase Tiny, where you can talk to us directly and even suggest prompts for upcoming stories. If you're not a tweeter, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram as well. Just search for the Tiny Bookcase. Now, if you want to support the podcast, 
and we'd really appreciate it if you did. You can do so at patreon.com forward slash the tiny bookcase. And then you could be just as special as these story seekers. Do we thank them? I think so. Well, then it's a huge thank you to the legendary Matthew McLaren and the absolutely epic Scott Byrne for their support. Thanks for listening. Catch you next week. Next week. Make it slimy. Make it slimy, Nick.